Hi, I'm Dr. Bruce Cromwell. Currently, I serve as the superintendent of the Great Plains and the Mid-America Conferences of the Free Methodist Church, which means I oversee Free Methodist churches and pastors in all of Nebraska, Kansas, Oklahoma, Arkansas, and parts of Missouri and Texas. It means I'm on the road a lot, and I meet a lot of different people in a lot of different places. But I've found that most people want pretty much the same thing. We want our kids to have better than we have. We want to live in a world of, of peace and, and righteousness. We seek to be understood and simply to, to be happy, to be blessed. We also all seem to struggle with what is right and what is wrong, with what is true and what is false. What is fake news and what is something that you need to heed and you need to pay attention to? I'm really excited about the theme for you all this year with the chapels on being anchored. And as I think about what it means to be anchored, I can't help but think about what St. Paul wrote to the church in Rome in, in Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. He says, So, brothers and sisters, because of God's mercies, I encourage you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice that is holy and pleasing to God. This is your appropriate priestly service. Don't be conformed to the patterns of this world but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you can figure out what God's will is, what is good and pleasing and mature. That's from the Common English Bible translation. Other versions translate verse two as, don't let the world squeeze you into its mold. And when I think about what it means to be anchored and what we are grounded in, what is our foundation? What is it that we believe in? I can't help but think that Many people are allowing the world to squeeze us into its mold, to change what our foundation is, to adjust what it is that grounds us, in which we are anchored. I'd like to suggest not only this week, but next week as well, that we have shifted on our grounding from a morality that's based on principles to a morality that's based on consequences. Once upon a time, we would make decisions based on things that we just had decided, whatever sources we had, that this was right and this was wrong. We were anchored in that truth, but we've shifted to a morality that's based on, hey, if, if you can do the time, it's okay to do the crime. If the punishment is not worse than the pleasure, I'm gonna do it. We make decisions based on weighing, is it worth it or is it not? Not on, is it good or is it not? There are challenges that come into this. First of all, we might run into a conflict of what our principles actually are. So think of a subject that's really difficult, like abortion. You know, there, there's maybe three different positions we could take. We might believe that abortion is wrong in every circumstance. No one should ever get an abortion. Or we might say that abortion is wrong and it, it's horrible when it happens, but in cases of rape, in cases where the mother's life is endangered, we understand that sometimes terminating a pregnancy is the, is the best thing you can do. And it might be that we believe that, you know, a woman has fundamental right to do what she wants with her body. You can't force her to, to carry this child to term if she doesn't want to. So abortion is, is okay if that's her choice. We may not agree, but it's her choice. These are principled decisions. Those can come into conflict. So let's say you have a Roman Catholic doctor and she believes that abortion is murder, abortion is wrong. And she's talking to a pro-choice advocate who says, no, a woman has a fundamental right to do whatever she wants with her body. 
The Catholic might ask the pro-choice person, why? Why do you say that? Well, it's just a fundamental basic human right. You can't force me to do anything. I have a right to choose. Well, why? I just do. That makes sense. Well, no, you don't, the Roman Catholic doctor might say, because abortion is murder. And the pro-choice person might again come back and say, why? Well, it is. There's a heartbeat. It's a living fetus. You know, the Bible tells us that thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not murder. It's against God's will. And you can see how this conversation might evolve as we start to then get into questions of authority. Someone might not care that it's in the Bible. It's not authoritative for them. These principles that they have are at odds. These principles are in conflict. I think it's important we learn how to discern what principles are godly and what principles are good and what principles are worth following and what principles are not. Next week, when I share with you again, we'll get into that a little bit more. But before we get there, I think there's something else we have to talk about. This idea, again, that we've started to make decisions based on consequences. Years ago, when I first started my pastoral career, I was a youth pastor in a large church. And one of the girls in our big youth group ended up getting pregnant, 14 years old, and got pregnant. She was coming to me and asking me what she should do. She was really struggling over whether or not she should get an abortion. She didn't want to, but she struggled. As she would say to me, I I can't bring a child into this world. I can't face the consequences of having to raise a child so young. I can't face the consequences of having to tell my mom I'm pregnant. I can't face the consequences of maybe having to marry this guy. And I reminded her that there were consequences for the life within her womb as well. But she said, yes, I know. But the consequences that affect me are far more important. She ended up having the baby and she gave the baby up for adoption, for which I'm grateful. Blessed a family that loved that child and raised that child. But I remember thinking at the time of being a little surprised that she made that decision because all along her thinking was based on consequences as opposed to principle. And her consequences, the ones that affected her, were all that mattered. She had no thought of of a Philippians approach that, you know, you should look not only for your own interests, but also for the interests of others. Her thinking was all based on her own interests, on what mattered to her, on what affected her. There are all kinds of consequences, you see. And to make a decision based on them can run into all kinds of conflicts. One of the biggest ways that we make decisions based on consequences is pleasure, which I mentioned before. We say things like seize the day. We say things like, hey, if it feels good, do it. We remind ourselves or we convince ourselves. We justify ourselves by saying, I deserve this. A lot of people only end up being concerned about the here and now. And I get that. I mentioned the six states that I have responsibility over. It means I'm on the road a lot. It means I travel a lot. It means I eat out a lot. And the reality is I often eat things when I'm out on the road by myself that I would not eat if I was with my wife. She would look at me and say, you sure you need that? Do you, do you really need to eat that? Maybe you should take it a little easy on the, this or on the, that I I do things. And I tell myself I'm traveling. I've got a stressful job. This is okay. I tell myself, you know what? It's just, you know, once in a blue moon, I'll, I'll, I'll diet tomorrow. I tell myself I'll be much more careful next week when I get home. But the problem with that kind of thinking is tomorrow never comes. Next week never seems to roll around. There's always some other reason 
where I can put off doing what I'm pledged to do. I'm only really concerned about feeding, literally, my appetites, my pleasures right now. Consequential thinking. We make decisions based on this, based on pleasure, pleasure for the individuals. You know, you do your own thing. That's fine. If you're happy, I don't care. Just don't affect me. Don't keep me from doing my thing. The problem there, of course, is your thing and my thing might run into conflict. I was visiting some pastors and some churches earlier this year, and I was in a part of Nebraska where they were getting ready for harvest. It was, it was getting on in the season and things were pretty dry. And one of the persons came to me and said, superintendent, we really need rain. Can you pray that God would just send rain to, to help us out with the harvest? Sure. Of course I can do that. But even before I left that meeting, somebody else came to me and said, Hey, we're having a family reunion this weekend. I can't wait to see some cousins I haven't seen in Year, superintendent, would you pray that we have really good weather? We're going to do everything outside. We can't wait to get together. Yeah, I can pray for that. But I remember thinking as I was driving away, what's God going to do? You have two different people who are praying totally antithetical things. What they want is in conflict. They both can't get what they want. This conflict creates problems. It's not a new problem either. And so years ago, the idea of utilitarianism, came along. Whatever provides the greatest happiness for the greatest number is what you do. So if we are utilitarian, then before we go into any situation, we'd sit down and we try to calculate how much pleasure is going to be given. And this guy named Jeremy Bentham created a way to do this, developed a pleasure calculus of sorts where you would measure the quantity, the duration, the extent, the purity of an experience, all these sorts of different things. And if there's more pleasure when you measure it up, then there's going to be pain, you do it. And if there's more pain than pleasure, you don't. It's kind of a pros and cons list that we like to make when we're making decisions. Utilitarianism, is it the best? And they further develop this idea on have we appealed to the greatest happiness for the greatest number? This is how governments often work. Think of the Democratic National Convention, the Republican National Convention, both of these have been going on and both parties are appealing to the people of the United States, saying what we have to offer, what our candidate can perform, what our platform declares is going to provide more happiness for more of you than what the opposition can bring. Have we appealed to the greatest happiness for the greatest number? It's utilitarianism, but there's a problem with that. As a superintendent, as a former pastor, as someone who's taught a lot of classes, I like to joke that there are a few things I like better than the sound of my own voice before a captive audience. I like to talk. And, and there's part of me that would love to not have to do this virtually, but to be in a large assembly hall with you. I enjoy speaking before people, whether there's two in a classroom or 2000, I have spoken before large, large groups. And there's a certain rush and thrill that comes from it. I thought about how much pleasure it gives me just to be able to share any wisdom I might have to tell stories, to dialogue, to interact. And I get a lot of pleasure doing that. Think about this little message today, 15 minutes or so. And I get pleasure from that. But you know, if I thought if it was 30 minutes or an hour, it's a vast amount of pleasure. But I also am a reasonable person. And I've thought about you, the listener, and you watching this, having to get credit for this, how much pain it puts you through to have to sit through someone who's rambling on. And certainly how much pain you'd have if it was a half an hour long or an hour long. And I realize a couple of you, maybe if an hour into it, might start to feel a little uncomfortable, might have to shift in your seat, maybe even go to the restroom. 
So the utilitarian in me would say, you would have this much pain, but I'd have this much pleasure. So we're just gonna go on and on and on until I get tired. But there's a problem there also, isn't there? It's not fair. It's not fair because there are far more of you than there are of me. And so again, morality based on things like this run into fundamental problems. So a guy named John Stuart Mill come along and he produced another uh, principle, a principle of justice. It was a principle of equity. And make no mistake, I believe that many of the fundamental problems we have in the United States today are not primarily about justice, although there is injustice in many places. They are problems of equity. There's not a level playing field. I believe without a shadow of a doubt that God gives strength and gifts and graces universally without exception. God does not show favoritism, but accepts women and men from every nation. And God has gifted and graced women and men from every nation, but our world has not equally provided opportunity from women and men, not just from every nation, but from every socioeconomic group, from every culture, from every place that you grow up. There are restrictions placed on persons because of the accident of the color of their skin, the accident of the gender with which they happen to be born, things that you and I have absolutely no control over. But I know as a white man, there are certain things that people assume about me or don't assume about me just based on white maleness and things that I don't realize are assumed to persons who aren't white male. Some of you have experienced this firsthand. I can remember many years ago when I first moved to Michigan, I was getting ready to pastor a large church. And when we were up there, we met with some professors at one of the sister schools of Central Christian College of Kansas. They were interested in having me and my wife maybe teach. Both of us have PhDs. Both of us are ordained elders in the Free Methodist Church, of which that school and Central are both affiliated. It seemed to make total sense, especially since my wife is going to be available to, to interview and to have her do stuff. We met, we talked for half for, for maybe three hours, two and a half hours or so. It was a great conversation, lots of laughter, lots of reminiscing. It was just wonderful. And when that was over, they turned and said, so Bruce, when can you start? My jaw about hit the floor. We're in Michigan because I, I, I'm going to pastor a large church. I have a full-time job. I don't have time to teach them, why aren't you asking my wife? All this talk about how excited we are, but why me? In the end, I was the one that was asked to adjunct. I was the one who was given a class. I told them I wouldn't do it unless my wife and I could team teach, and they agreed, but still my name was the one listed on the course listing. I was the one who was paid, even though my wife ended up teaching more of the class than I did. I was starkly confronted with the inequity that often can happen in life. Or consider this as an example. I, I've done this before in groups when I'm speaking. Let's say we were all able to get together in a large auditorium. You're in this place, and some of you would be seated towards the front, and some of you will be seated farther in the back. But what if I took out one of my business cards, and I wrote a word on that business card, and I held it up, and I said, anybody who can tell me what this word is, I'll give you $5 right now. My guess is those of you who are seated in the front would raise your hand. You might come up with your hands outstretched right for me to slap a, a link and write in your palm. You could see that. You would say it. But the ones in the back would immediately begin to protest. We can't see that far. Card's only yay big. You're writing in so small. We have no chance to be able to read that. We can't get the money. This isn't fair. And they'd be right. And what else would be true is the people in the very front 
wouldn't recognize that immediately. They wouldn't necessarily think, well, hang on, there are people in the back row who can't see this. And just because I'm in the front and I can, I'm in a privileged position that they don't have. That could be revealed to them. Some would pick up on that pretty quick, but the, but the initial thought would just be, oh, sure, we can do that. I'll take advantage of it. Absolutely. Not realizing they were given an opportunity. They had a privilege that not everybody else had. And this is the very definition of privilege and the problem of inequity in our society. Some people are given opportunities that others aren't, and we don't even recognize it. For the rest of this week, I challenge you to think about what privileges do you have that other people don't have? What opportunities are you given that others aren't? Yes, there are things that you have earned. You are in college and working on a college degree. Many, many people in this world don't have the opportunity you have, an opportunity you have worked for, an opportunity perhaps your parents have saved for. God bless you in this endeavor. May you not squander this time to, to learn how to think rightly, to develop virtue, to become women and men of character, to be anchored in something that is strong and secure and that will keep you anchored for the rest of your life. Embrace it. But think about other things that maybe you're given that you didn't do anything to deserve. People just assume it about you, for better or for worse. How are you privileged? And think also about how you make decisions. How many are based on consequential thinking? If this happens, then I'll do that. Or how many of your decisions are based on a principle? This is right, and therefore this is how we should behave. Or this is wrong, and I won't go there. You know, when I served in Michigan, we served a lot of people from a lot of different cultures. And I began to realize that different cultures approach things in different ways. We served 750 to 1,000 immigrants and refugees from around the world. And though this is a broad brushstroke, we discovered that a lot of our immigrants and refugees that came from places like Bhutan and Nepal would have very much a shame and honor sort of culture. So I could ask a direct question. But if they were going to have to tell me they didn't know and they would somehow be embarrassed, they would rather lie than do that. They didn't want to be dishonored. And so we had to learn to speak in a way that always gave them honor and gave them an out, very passive aggressive sort of conversations in how they would interact. For many of the people we had that came to us from Central Africa, it was a power dynamic. So they often wouldn't look me in the eye, then they'd shake my hand because to look someone in the eye is to treat them as an equal, and they never felt like they were my equal. Since I'm the, the head of the church, I'm the, I'm the leader of this large uh, church community, they wouldn't see themselves that way. They'd always been taught they were less, so they would never do that. And if I'd ask them a question, they would say what they thought I wanted them to say. Right or wrong wasn't the issue. It was maintaining that appropriate power dynamic. Here in the West, in the United States in particular, we tend to operate on a right-wrong perspective. So think of some of the different things we see in the media, played out in politics. People will often argue, I was never convicted. They never proved it. I didn't do anything wrong. Well, when it came to an abuse of power, maybe they had. When it came to shaming other people, maybe it was clear that they had. But because they can say, you can't prove that it was wrong, somehow in our thinking, that makes it okay. These are some of the values we have that we're anchored in, some of the principles we follow. What are your principles? 
what are you anchored in? And do you make decisions based on them or do you make them on consequences? Think about it this week. We'll talk again next week. I pray that this semester is going well for you, that you are safe, that you are respecting other people, that you are diligent in your studies, that you're having a great time, and that you're just trusting that God continues to shape you and make you the woman, the man that God intends for you to be. God bless you all. Have a great week. Amen.